This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. We're going to have another short prayer here. I want to I want to go into a time of pastoral prayer before we begin the sermon, so uh, let's just pray together uh, one more time this morning. Uh, our Father, we're thankful for this day, and we look forward to days ahead when an even greater number shall gather around and worship the crucified one. Uh, this day, God, uh, may you remind us to boldly proclaim the truth that you are the famous one and that none will find rest in their hearts until they find rest in you. And Lord Jesus, may the the truth of your sacrifice pierce us this morning and may your story fall upon us. Lord, wound us with a sense of sin this morning and, and lead us to your healing hands. Spirit, we know that your presence Uh, with us this morning. We pray and we beg that you'll bless this church and that you'll help us to be a church that's wide awake and thirsting after you. Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray for this city, for this island, this state, this country, this world, all yours, knowing that you're not done. War and violence rage, and we long for it all to to end. We desire your peace, God. We know you see, we know that you're present, even and especially when we suffer. And we're grateful that we don't have to go it alone. And so we ask now, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Amen. So good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Some of y'all have been traveling. It's good to see you back. Uh, We have some folks out who are sick this morning. And so uh, we just pray God's uh, spirit with them and that they would be comforted. But it's great to be here with you all. It's my third Sunday preaching, so I'm stoked to get in the pulpit every Sunday. Uh, I really love it. I hope you've had a blessed week. Um, have you all heard the one about the blinker? No? Anybody heard the, the one about the blinker? So there's this guy, right? And there's this guy and his not-so-smart friend, and they're out in the driveway, And the guy, he asks his not-so-smart friend to help him with something. He says, I think the blinker, the the turn signal on my car may be broken. He says, can you go behind the car, and when I turn it on, tell me if it's working or not. So the not-so-smart friend says, sure, and he goes behind the car. The guy opens the door, sits in the driver's seat, and he turns the blinker signal on, and he says, is it working? And, yes, says the dumb guy. No, yes, no, yes, no, yes. (laughs) I like that one. Uh, (laughs) I like that. The blinkers, right, as we all know, they're tools, right? They're they're meant to signal to others where we're headed. Or we could say... Uh, we could give our bearings with blinkers. They, they help us give others our bearings, right? They signal to others which direction 
were going, and as a result, which direction they should go or wait to go. And so some of y'all don't use your blinkers. You start using your blinkers. Just some of you, anybody not use their blinkers? Everybody use their blinkers? You guys all use your blinkers, right? Um, and so as we continue on with this mini-series that we began last week, which we titled Bearings, we're going to continue thinking about some of our core, foundational, fundamental beliefs that are course-setting for us, that are course-charting for us. Very important beliefs. These core beliefs, as I noted, are listed in our Nazarene Articles of Faith. If you've never heard of those, uh, you should read them sometime. In fact, if you're here week after week, you will have read through all of them uh, by the end of a few weeks, right? So last week we considered Article 1 in relation to the Trinity. And actually, we're going to consider the same article for our starting point this week, Article 1. And the reason for revisiting Article 1 is, and i got to admit this, a little unfortunate. If you look at the first three articles of our Nazarene Articles of Faith, Here's what you get, right? Article 1, the Trinity. Article 2, Jesus. And Article 3, the Spirit. And I say it's unfortunate because while Jesus and the Spirit have an article that sort of clarifies in brief who they are, we don't have one specifically for God the Father. It goes Trinity, Jesus, Spirit. And like God the Father gets like half a sentence or something. And so when we read Article 1, there's not yet this statement about the Father, but about the Trinity. And so, um, let's see, I think we can get it up here. Here it is. We saw this last week. We believe in one eternally existent, infinite God, sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, that he only is God, holy in nature, attributes and purpose, the God who is holy love and light is triune, an essential being revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you can see this is a Trinitarian claim, and it's a good Trinitarian claim. But because I couldn't live with myself if I were to simply skip over the Father in the sermon series, and because I think having a good understanding of God the Father is critical to our faith, I decided that this morning it would be best and worthwhile to talk about God the Father. And at the start here this morning, I want to suggest that I want to suggest to you that what I'll latch on to this, right? What we envision, that is what our mind's eye sees. When we think of the Father, what we envision when we think of the Father is super important. Probably for some of you, when you pray to the Father, or you think of God the Father, it's maybe, maybe the face of Jesus. Maybe you sort of transpose Jesus' face from a painting or a picture you've seen onto God the Father. Maybe for some of you, it's like a blurry kind of figure. For some of you, maybe you put an earthly father's face uh, to it when you're praying to God the Father. I don't know. I don't know what you envision when you think of God the Father. Um, Jesus does say at one point, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but I don't think he's talking necessarily about physical uh, facial attributes there, right? We could go in that direction this morning, but I don't want to confuse the two persons of the Trinity. I want them to be distinct, right? So we're going to take a little bit of a different route. Now, for some... Um, yeah, you, you may envision an earthly father. And for some of you, that might be a good thing. Some of you maybe had the best father figure growing up. Some of you, if you envision an earthly father, maybe it's more of a struggle. Some, maybe you didn't have 
an earthly father growing up. So that's maybe not an option. I don't know. I don't know what you envision when you think of God the Father. And so this morning, I want, I want to think about that. But here's, here's something that's pretty close to a solid truth, right? It was a remark by this late Christian author. His name was A.W. Tozer, and some of you guys have probably heard of him. He said in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he said this, what comes to our minds or what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's kind of interesting. That's a big statement. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God, the Father, is the most important thing about us. If that's the case, or even if it's half the case, your mental image of God, your mental picture of God, the Father, is vitally important. What you visualize when you think of God, the Father, is of profound importance. Why? Well, if we look like to the modern cognitive sciences, right, they tell us over and over again that we humans tend to think in pictures. Right? We think in graphics. And what we think in our minds, it shapes how we speak. And that in turn shapes how we feel, and in turn, all of those things shape how we act, how we live. And so we follow the logic, right? What we envision or what we think shapes the very way we feel and speak and live, right? Last week, as we thought about the Trinity, for those of you who were able to be here, we got a visual for thinking about the Trinity. Uh, you, you, if you were able to watch the sermon even, you, you can think about that visual that we had last week. Uh, you can maybe even see in your mind's eye the kids up here dancing, yeah? And... Uh, and then, you, you, so you have that trio, and then it expands as the members of the Trinity are holding out their arm and inviting you into the dance, and inviting me into the dance. And that unbroken circle just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And hopefully that image will stick with you for a long time. And so today I want us to try to get an image that we can come back to time and time again when we're thinking about or even praying to God the Father. So in Psalm 116, the psalmist, he gives us just such a vision. One I think that we can latch on to. But at first glance, even though there are several possible images for God the Father in this psalm, there's one less obvious one that I, I think is of immense value. We're going to consider the psalm or the song in three stanzas, which, like many songs, seems to, to fit a natural flow. And one thing that's notable about this song is that it's a song of thanksgiving. Okay, the person who wrote this song, or this psalm, song and psalm are just synonyms, they're interchangeable. But the person who wrote this song is an individual who had entered into the temple of his day in a spirit of gratitude, who is thankful because God saved his life. So this person writes a song about God saving his life. And the first stanza or set of verses, they say this, hallelujah, that's how it starts off, hallelujah, I'm filled with love when Yahweh listens to the sound of my prayer, isn't that beautiful, hallelujah, I'm filled with love when Yahweh listens to the sound of my prayer, when he bends down to hear me as I call, that's an amazing image of God the Father, the bonds of death 
were all around me. The snares of Sheol held me fast. Distress and anguish held me in their grip. I called on the name of Yahweh. Deliver me, Yahweh, I beg you. And so we notice that the first word of this song is hallelujah. The term hallelujah, you can look up here on the screen, it's a verb, right? And more specifically, it's an imperative. That is, it's a command. It's a verb commanding someone to do something. And it, it consists of these three parts. You can see it broken down here, hallel, u, and ya, right? And so hallel means praise, the u means y'all, and the ya is shorthand for God or Yahweh, right, for Lord. So when you take this together, it means y'all praise God. So when you're shouting hallelujah, that you're saying y'all praise God, right? Uh, and so you're kind of giving somebody an order, a command to dole out praise to God, to give praise to God, right? And today we, we just often um, abbreviate, abbreviate into a sort of exclamation, praise God. Or when we say it, we're not really commanding someone to praise God, but that was its original intent. Praise God, y'all, praise God. And after the psalmist says that, we read four lines of beautiful poetry, Beautiful prayer poetry. The psalmist tells us that God listened to his prayers or listens to his prayers and gives us this image of God the Father, just like an earthly parent, kneeling down to listen to us. Right? And the, the psalmist, the psalmist was in a state of distress, a state of anguish. And in his desperation, the songwriter could do nothing but call out to God. I've been there. You've been there, right? You've been in that position where you're at the end and all you got left to do is call out to God. We've been there. When it seems like everything's hitting at once, like we can't catch a break, when the piling on of the crap doesn't seem to compute or make sense, and all you've got left is just to call on God. Anybody else been there? Some of you? These are hard times, they're hard places to be in. But I'm grateful. I'm grateful that our Bible doesn't overlook those things. It doesn't cover them up. It's honest about them. And you know, many, uh, too many people in the church have been made to feel ashamed of being in positions like that. And if you were to go and try to get help from a counselor or a therapist, you're made to feel even worse. It's absurd. That's absurd. Well, let me just say this. Counseling is a good thing. Therapy is a good thing. Even if you don't feel like you need to go, go. It's a good thing. Right? I did about a year and a half of it in the last few years, and I have to tell you, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Got me healthy. Got me healthy. Christy and I did it together as we were going through some trying times with our, one of our kids, one of our daughter, right, Amusha. One of the best decisions I ever made. Don't ever be ashamed to do that sort of thing. Don't ever be ashamed to get help, to ask for help. Right? The church should be the last place where anybody's made to feel ashamed because they need help and are getting help, seeking help. And don't ever make somebody feel ashamed because of it. In these verses, there's this image of God kneeling down to be with the psalmist. And when I read that, 
I actually envisioned my old therapist, right? Whenever a session would end, sometimes our kids would be reading and, or doing homework in the waiting room or something, and every single time he would come out, he would drop down onto a knee, he would get right on their level and look them in the eyes and talk to them, right? And when I read this song, that's, that's actually what comes to my mind, him doing that. When we're in distress or when we're calling on God, that's, that's what it's like. He kneels down and looks us right in the eye, gets on our level, comes down to our level. That's what it's like. Yahweh, our Father, comes down to man's level, humanity's level, even as we're entangled, even as the psalmist is entangled. And now you got to realize that this Jewish view of God that the psalmist held, it was patently different than other prominent views of God at the time. Right? For instance, among the Greeks at this time, Aristotle promoted a view of God in which he described him as the unmoved mover. Well, unmoved mover, this was the idea that God was impassable or like a leper, right? He, he couldn't feel anything. God couldn't feel. This is Aristotle's view. God was emotionless and God was distant. But the psalm tells us the opposite. The psalm tells us the opposite. God is, in the words of Clark Pinnock, the most moved mover. God is moved by us humans. He's moved by what's going on with us. By what we're going through. God's moved by that. In no way is our Father numb to it all. When you're going through it, God is moved by that. So I entitled uh, today's sermon, it's a French title, Du la Père Pathétique, right? And why, why a French phrase, right? Seems kind of pretentious, not doing it just to be pretentious. But this means God the pathos-filled Father, right? We don't have... Uh, this word pathetic in English. We don't have an equivalent, or I would have used it. We can get kind of close with empathetic or sympathetic, but it's still not quite the same. Pathos-filled, right? It, it, it's kind of like our word pathetic, but we don't want to call God pathetic, right? Um, but it means precisely the opposite. Whereas pathetic has this sense of pity, right? Pathetic is pathos-filled, which means that that God has this ability to be deeply moved. God has an ability to be intensely moved. We don't have a word like that in English to, to necessarily just capture that. Patatik, the ability to be deeply and intensely moved. Right. So perhaps another way um, I could say this is God the most moved Father. God is intensely moved. He feels us. He gets us. He's with us in it. And we see that in the next part of the psalm. It says this. Yahweh is merciful and upright. Our God is tenderness. Woo, that's beautiful. Our God is tenderness. Yahweh looks after the simple. When I was brought low, he gave me strength. My heart be at peace once again, for Yahweh has treated you generously. He's rescued me from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. I shall pass my life in the presence of Yahweh in the land of the living. 
My trust doesn't fail even when I say I'm completely wretched. In my terror, I said, no human being can be relied on. What return can I make to Yahweh for his generosity to me? In other words, God, I owe you. What can I do? He says, I shall take the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. I shall fulfill my vows to Yahweh, witnessed by all his people. You know, our article one that I was showing you, it rightly says God is holy love. It rightly says God is holy light. He is indeed. But as the psalm tells us here, God is also tenderness. The language of the psalm in Hebrew, actually, it's quite vivid. The word there, tender, is actually what's known in language studies as a participle. A participle. And that's a word that's a part verb and a part adjective. So it's part doing something and part describing something, right? A participle. It's a descriptive action. And I point this out because this word actually might be better translated as God is always being tender. Or God is tendering. Or maybe even God is compassioning with an ing on the God is compassioning. Like there never is a time where God is not compassioning. God is perpetually, infinitely compassioning. And in verse 7, what, what the English actually obscures is the last word in the verse. It's not merely that Yahweh our Father has treated us generously, but that Yahweh our Father has, the, the Hebrew says, weaned us generously. It weaned us generously. These are great descriptive, vivid images. So we have these pictures of God the Father kneeling down to our level and the Father here preventing our stumble, like catching us as we're about to fall, right? It's as if just before we take that spill, He grabs us and, and pulls us up. And because the individual singing or writing this song feels so thankful, he wants to express a way to, to show his heartfelt gratitude. He feels as if he owes God something. Anybody ever feel like they owe God something? Mm-hmm. Many of us might sort of balk at the idea of, how can we owe God anything? Right? Fact is, we all owe God. Some will say, well... Not much we can do about that. Throw the hands in the air. But in the words of Dwight Schrute, false. Right? There's something we can do. There's something we can do. Look at what the psalmist says. He says in 12, what return can I make the Yahweh for his generosity to me? And his answer to his own question is, I shall take the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. Now, the cup of salvation, kind of enigmatic, but it was this drink offering. That, that one could offer in the temple. And it was to be filled and then poured out on the altar as an offering to God the Father. Now, here's the thing about this cup of salvation. God the Father initiated, God the Father initiated the giving of the cup of salvation. In other words, it's God the Father's cup. You follow me here? So it's as if God is handing the psalmist the cup, right? And the psalmist fills it and lifts it and pours its contents out, giving the cup and its contents back to the Father. And that right there, that's the image that I want to stick with you this morning when you think of God the Father. 
a pair of hands. Now follow me here, look up. A pair of hands, you've got to imagine it, extending a chalice or a cup to you. God the Father's hands extending a cup before you. When you think of God the Father, that's what I want you to think of. If you're having trouble visualizing what God the Father might look like, or, you know, just God the Father in general, I think that can be really helpful. When you, when you think of God the Father, think of hands holding a chalice or a cup out to you, before you. When you pray to God the Father, think of those hands holding that cup. It's something I've landed on this week, and I've been doing it all week, all throughout the week, every time I've prayed, every single time. I've been thinking about those hands holding a cup. So anytime I go into a, a, a prayer mode or a moment of prayer, that's what I've been thinking of first this week. God the Father's hands holding a cup before me. And my first thing when I wake up in the morning, this morning, for instance, first thing I thought of, I saw those hands and the cup, and my, my first thing I prayed was, Father, what do you have in your cup today? May I drink of it. When I'm going through a particularly difficult time, perhaps, I will now pray to those hands holding the chalice or the cup before me as if God's saying, drink of this and be healed. Drink of this, Michael, and be at peace. Or when I'm going through a joyous time, maybe, envisioning those hands, the Father's hands holding the cup to me, as if God's saying, drink and be merry, drink and rejoice. Or when I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper, God the Father, the one holding out that cup, saying, drink of this and remember my son. And for any circumstance that you can find yourself in, you can envision those hands holding the cup, the Father's hands holding that cup to you. Father, what am I supposed to do in this circumstance? One thing I know I can do is drink of your cup. And whatever you have for me in this cup, I'll be satisfied. If it's suffering, I'll drink of it. If it's joy, I'll drink of it. Whatever is in your cup, Father, please just let me drink. So as we come to the last several verses of the song, here's what we encounter. He says, costly in Yahweh's sight is the death of his faithful. I beg you, Yahweh, I am your servant. I'm your servant and my mother was your servant. You've undone my fetters. Fetters is a fancy word for chains. You've undone my chains. I shall offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. The sacrifice is the cup of salvation. I shall fulfill my vows to Yahweh, witnessed by all his people in the courts of the house of Yahweh in your very heart to Jerusalem. And in this portion of the song, we encounter another image of the Father. Here he's not merely stooping down to listen, not merely reaching out to prevent our fall, but he's undoing the psalmist's chains. And here we see that the psalmist's deep belief, we see his deep belief that God feels his people. God feels the pains of his people. Pathos filled, pathetic. And so the psalmist reiterates again that he owes the Father. So he's going to fulfill his vows. 
And the reality, as I said, is that we all owe God. The sad thing in this life, folks, the sad thing in this life is that some people just refuse to admit it. Too proud to admit that they owe God. Many of you have probably heard of the comedian Ricky Gervais. Now, he's an atheist, right? And he's, he's a pretty aggressive atheist. And recently I heard him on a, on a show tell a joke that's much more sort of profound than it is funny. I didn't laugh when I heard it. And he wasn't trying to be funny when he heard it. He was trying to make a point. He said this. I hope you don't laugh either. He says, a Holocaust survivor dies of old age. And when she gets to the pearly gates, she tells God a Holocaust joke. And God responds, I don't find that funny. The Holocaust survivor says, I guess you had to be there. You see the main point, yeah? That this, the Holocaust is this tremendous event of suffering. And Ricky Gervais is wondering, where was God, God the Father, and all of that? If he was all-powerful, for example, why didn't he stop it? The fact that he didn't must prove that there is no God. And if, he, if there is a God, then he's too weak to stop it. And that's not a God I really want to believe in. Now, admittedly, there's a lot to unpack in, the, in that statement. I feel like I can actually dismantle the logic of that joke uh, from a number of angles pretty easily. For instance, I could at least anecdotally right, point to the fact that many Holocaust survivors have shared their stories, their testimonies over uh, the years. And you know what? They've talked openly about the fact that God was right there. So to make that joke is actually to negate their experiences. We don't want to be doing that. But they, they talk about God being right there in the midst of their suffering. It wasn't God doing these things. It was cruel humans. And God doesn't use His power simply to stop every bad thing or any bad thing. He calls on His believers to preach the gospel that will change hearts, which in turn will change human behavior. God isn't going to run roughshod over humans because that's not how He operates. The God of Calvinism might operate that way, but we Wesleyan Arminians, we don't understand God that way. We Nazarenes, we don't think of God in those kinds of terms. But we can look at it like this. A God who only lets bad things happen to bad people is actually kind of an unfair God, right? Honestly, none of us would actually really like it if it were that way. Why? Because we're all bad people at some point or another. And so it's a, it actually becomes a moot point. Or even if God only let bad things happen to bad people, I want to submit to you that we, as God's children, who have the Spirit of God in us, if we saw that, right, because we have this ethic of Jesus in us, that we live by, if we saw bad things happening to people, we would step in and help. Just like Jesus did. And, and guess what? The second we step in and help, just like Jesus did, guess what? You begin suffering with the sufferers. And so bad is now happening to good people. 
And the reality, the, the reality of it all is this, that, that in this life, suffering happens. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Sometimes we bring it on others. Sometimes we enter into it voluntarily to help others. Sometimes we enter into it because God asks us to. Sometimes it's what's in the cup. Pain and suffering. Sometimes that's what's in the cup. Why would God ever ask us to suffer? Well, because God sees real human suffering and knows that they need others when they're, that, that those people need others when they're going through tough times. And he asks us to be there with them, to bring the hope of the gospel into that tough situation, to be a light. And going back to the Holocaust for a moment, I, I could tell a lot of stories, as I said, about folks in those internment camps who relied on, who trusted in, who encountered God the Father. There's, for instance, Magda Herzberger, a survivor who was a corpse gatherer for Hitler's regime. She was faced with suicide many times, but relied on God and prayed without ceasing. And in a speech that she gave at a university in 2014, she said this, it's possible to survive unbelievable tragedies in the face of diversity. I think my great trust in God was my source of survival. Regardless of what I experienced in the camps and all of those terrible things, I'm still a loving and forgiving person. You have to carry in your heart forgiveness, and if you do that, people live in harmony. Woo! Or there's Rose Price, another survivor. She tells the story of her and her sister Sarah's being in a camp together. And at one point, Rose began to notice that her sister Sarah was getting really sick. She had typhoid fever. And because the guards needed prisoners, the guards needed prisoners, they were always on the lookout for anyone who was sick because they might get other people sick. So they could just dispose of them, right? And so it wouldn't spread through the camps. So that's kind of odd. Uh, but when the guards inspected the, bar the barracks one night, Rose put her thick cover over her sister when they came by to sort of conceal her, and she laid on top of the cover right, to hide her more. They didn't notice her. They just passed on by. And shortly after, a woman nearby noticed the ill sister, and she told Rose that she needed to get her sister medicine immediately. So in her story, uh, Rose says this. She says, that night... I waited until everyone was asleep and made my way in the dark to the infirmary. You've got to remember, she's in a camp. The fear that my sister would leave me overcame my fear of being caught. Still, my heart pounded in my ears. And when I finally reached the infirmary, I discovered to my amazement that it wasn't locked. I took a deep breath and tiptoed inside. I expected at, at least the cabinets to be locked. But to my surprise, they too were open. I grabbed as many bottles of pills as I could carry. I couldn't read the labels in German, so I raced back to the barracks and woke the woman who said Sarah needed medicine. And we pried open Sarah's mouth and forced her to swallow some tablets every few hours. And over the next days, her fever dropped and she began to eat on her own again. She says, without my sister, I knew I wouldn't survive, so I silently thanked God for saving her, both for her sake and mine. Look, 
not everyone is open to the Father's love. Not everyone is open to the idea of God the Father. And it's so much more than an idea. It's a, a divine person, right? And so it shouldn't be any surprise that there are those who aren't, right, who have chosen to be blind to this. And that, that because of that, they lack a certain means of relating or understanding to God the Father. But when we open ourselves up to that, to the Father, to the Father's love, and when we become vulnerable before God, we begin the process, listen to me on this, when we open ourselves up to become vulnerable to God, we begin the process of becoming our truest selves. Our image, our vision of God the Father is of immense importance. We need a healthy image of God the Father. Not based on any earthly father figure, but based on God the Father Himself. God the Father of Jesus. And while our vision of God the Father is important, I should say too that our vision of ourselves in relation to God the Father is also important. May I submit to you that when we think of the Father and ourselves, one very healthy way to envision this is, as I said, God's hands reaching down toward us. We become the recipients, reaching down with that cup toward us, and we are receiving it. Whatever its contents may be, you don't get to decide that. You can ask for it. When you pray, friends, may such a vision strengthen your connection with God the Father. May it be. And now, if you're able, let's stand together. If you need to sit, that's fine too. With our palms facing up in a posture of receiving, let's receive this benediction. Brothers and sisters, let us be children who look to God our Father in times of joy and in times of need, in times of sorrow and in times of regret, in times of remorse and in times of rejoicing. And may we, like the psalmist, never be too afraid or too ashamed to call on Him, to call on Yahweh. May we trust that He will listen, that He will kneel down, that He will pick us up, and that He will be tender toward us. And may we see His hands holding the chalice, the cup daily, and ask, Father, what's in your cup today? May I drink. Go in peace, brothers and sisters, and drink deeply from the cup of salvation. Mm -hmm.